What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Ableton Music Producer Podcast. This is Dan Giffen. Really excited for this episode. I am starting a new thing where I am highlighting the best of the episodes, starting from the beginning of the podcast and going all the way through. It's kind of crazy. I've had 82 episodes now and just really appreciate your support. Speaking of, if you guys haven't liked and subscribed to the podcast, wherever you might be listening on the interweb, Spotify, Apple, wherever, uh, if you could do that or leave a review, I would greatly appreciate it be super helpful to me in this podcast. Also, if you want to be the first to listen to new episodes when they come out and get new content teaching you Ableton Live, free downloads, other stuff I'll be sending your way, go to liveproducersonline.com newsletter, join the newsletter, I'll send you cool stuff, and it's a good way to stay connected. Today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Melodics. Melodics.com, go there, download their desktop app. It's a really cool way to grow your skills producing in the studio. I've had a lot of fun with it, and I think you will too. You can plug in almost any MIDI controller or your electronic drum set and practice playing all the time. They've got lots of different genres, and it's just a fun way to gamify your practicing experience. It's way better than Rock Band or Guitar Hero and it's something you can actually use in your music productions and to become a better performer, producer, go check it out, melodics.com, and download the desktop app for free. Or if you decide to join the subscription, you'll save 20%, which is wonderful. The discount code LPO-20, that's LPO-20. Today we have the first 15 episodes that I ever did, and I basically cut out the best highlights of the guests that we've had. Starting with the first episode today is episode 11 with Danny Wyatt. He's been a good friend, mentor of mine, and he has a great episode talking about mixing and mastering and his process. So he shares a lot of good insights, and without wasting any more time, let's check out episode 11 with Danny Wyatt. When somebody, say, sends you their song, right, they've produced it, they don't really know much about mixing or mastering, and yeah. they just send you a song and they want you to mix it. Yeah. What's, what's some of the first initial steps that you take approaching a brand new mix? Sure, yeah, yeah. I, I always ask for a reference track because mm -hmm. it's art and it's crazy subjective, which is a good thing. And I have my taste, but I also want to see the producer's vision so I'll ask for a reference track, not to match it, like I'm going to match the kick drum, but just to get a vibe. And yeah. uh, so the first thing I do is I listen to the reference track the whole way through and just try to see what they, you know, guess a little bit what they're going for, what they liked about it. And then I'll listen to what I call the unity mix or the all faders up mix and just listen down through the whole thing and see what the production mix sounds like and how organized it is. And then from there, I import the reference track into the session and I pull all the faders down and I start with the kick or whatever the most prominent low frequency element is. And I channel strip it and make it beautiful. And then I balance it against the mix bus that you know I start with and my mix bus plugins. And then I build the drums, I build the bass, I get the side chaining grooving. And then I try to add each element in what I imagine to be the order of importance. So I try to do the, okay. the main chords. I'll get the vocal in very early if there is a vocal, um, just so I can feel the song. And I try to just get the meat of the song going uh, right away. And then I do the detailed work 
I find if I do the details too early and the, the meat of the song is not right, I wasted my time because I have to redo all the little things because the, because of the relative, the relativity of mixing. Yeah. Um, so, so that's my, that's my basic approach. And then I, I switch a lot with the reference as I'm going, uh, just to guide me. And, and then, you know, uh, I'll finish it with the sort of the final automation and I'll send a mix to the client and let them live with it. And then, you know, it's rarely a hole in one. It, it, that's just not what our business is. Um, it's yeah. cha- changes. And I just encourage people to live with it long enough that I can do all the changes at once. And of course, it's never perfect world. But usually by the second or third version, it's good to go. And then what I like to do at the end is once they love one, I usually make some alts just to see if we can beat it for, for them or for me. I'm always curious. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, and then they can live with those alt mixes and then, you know, things are good to go. And, and I usually, I mean, I almost always have a separate mixing and mastering stage. I, I, I sometimes, you know, I'll give people a mix that has some, limiting on it and a, a simple mix a master bus so that mm-hmm. they can kind of hear it like mastered but yeah I, I i i do believe in a separate mastering session yeah um and okay. for some of our our noob listeners who maybe are just getting into producing or just getting into mixing can you just define real quick for us the difference between mixing and mastering because sometimes that gets confused for a lot of people yeah for sure you know mixing is taking the individual production elements and relating all of them um, with usually a pretty simple plug-in chain on the mix bus. I like to do console and tape. And then once the drums and bass are built, I'll add a limiter as a placeholder and squeeze down on the mix and finish it. And then you have two options when you're sort of done with the mix. You can create a pre-master, which is just that mix with the mix bus plugins bypassed and some headroom. And then the mastering engineer, whoever that is, can master that stereo pre-master. And that's cool, but I don't love that as much as making stems. Right. And yeah. stems, you know, are composite tracks where you break a 48 channel mix down into maybe 12 stems, kick mm-hmm. by itself maybe snare clap by itself. The rest of the drums, maybe you can live together sub bass by itself, bass by itself. Maybe all the chords can live together. The leads can live together. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. And then if you take, if you take those into, into a mastering session, then you can really make it like perfect, you know, because if you're mastering, we create a big master bus on the master bus or the mix bus, whatever you want to call it. Lots of different compressors, EQs, saturators, limiters, wideners, all kinds of different things, DSers. And you make a very complex mastering chain. And we also, of course, teach mastering at Next Level Sound, too. And I think it's important for people to learn mastering, whether they want to do it or not, because it makes you smarter producer. It's part of your producer training. Oh, absolutely. Um, I always yeah. say that, that mixing is like cooking and mastering is like baking. It's good to learn how to cook before you bake. Otherwise, you would just be super fat because all you'd eat is cookies, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Unless they were gluten-free. Um, well, yeah, that's true. Protein. Oh, right. Protein cookies. So, so, but... 
This next episode is with my good friend Thomas Falds. He is a brand manager for Ableton in the U.S., and he talks a lot about insights for producing. Uh, he shares some of his favorite tips and workflows inside of Ableton Live. And when Ableton Live 10 first came out, um, he shares some really cool insights and features with that as well. So this is episode eight with Thomas Falds. One thing that I like to ask our guests is uh, if you want to share and kick us off with an inspiring quote that you love. Sure. Uh, there's so many. I mean, I like Ableton uh, has the, the phrase, you know, make music on all the promotional materials. And that's just so to, to the point, uh, right. this idea that nothing really matters outside of, of making music. It's all to, to, to support that. Uh, but one of my other favorite quotes um, was at the very first Loop conference in Berlin. Um, young Guru, the engineer for Jay-Z and so many countless uh, hit songs and, and great music. He talked about this idea that someone asked about a pre using presets in their productions. And he said, you know what? The, the piano is a preset. And... Uh, you, you know, you're playing this acoustic instrument, but you didn't create that sound. Someone else created that note. And right. um, I just never thought of it like that before. Like, it kind of blew my mind open. Hmm. That's and interesting. Just, and yeah. then uh, at the last loop, or two loops ago, uh, No ID was uh, talking about, was, was referencing that Young Guru loop presentation. And uh, he talked about not only is the, the piano a preset, but a sample can be like a piano. You could take a sampled sound and be a virtuoso with it. It depends on how you think about it and what you do with that sample. Right. And uh, that made me think of, you know, someone like Jay Dilla that does, you know, so many magical things with, uh, you know, pre-recorded audio. Sure. That, those are just some of the quotables that has come out of Loop. I've heard so from several producers that, like, a lot of songs have already been produced or created, but there's so many ways of interpreting that or taking that sound that's already been used and making your own in a lot of different ways. You know, I mean, there's so many hit songs that use the same chord progressions, but they're all their own song. It's what you make out of it. And I think the same is true with, like, sound design. Like, you're talking about presets, taking that same sound of preset, making it into something completely different and making it your own. Yeah, sometimes, you know, the sophistication is in the details of things, you know. Sure. Uh, a lot of people think all hip-hop sounds the same or all jazz sounds the same, but if you really get into that kind that music, uh, you realize that it's the, the subtle details that, that makes all the difference. Next episode is episode 10 with Matt McCoy. He's the founder of Loop Community. And he talks a lot about performing with Ableton Live in this episode. He also shares some good insights about uh, things that he has taken away, learning Ableton Live as a certified trainer and other things. So check it out. I'm a big Steve Jobs fan. I mean, there's a lot of quotes by him that I really love, but one of my favorites is that simple can be harder than complex. You have to work hard to get your thinking clean to then make it simple. And I relate to that a lot just in developing products for Loop Community because a lot of what we do at Loop Community is take complex things and try to make them simpler for people. Yeah. So, so just the idea of running tracks or MIDI controllers and that kind of thing, we just try to make a simpler way. And it's hard because it is a complex thing. I mean, running tracks live is not a, a super simple concept. And having to try to figure out how to make it simple. And I love the problem solving side of that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I totally agree with you. Simple is better 
you know, in the world of like so many different plugins and sounds and different, you know, workflows as far as pulling off your live performance and, you know, which controller should you use, what software is right for you, you know, how do you play your instruments live? There's always like 600 means to an end when it comes to performing live music or even just recording and producing and creating. But, you know, simplicity is key. I'm right. Really shared that quote, man. I yeah. True. I knew this guy who was a graphic designer that I worked with and you know, he would try to design stuff really clean and simple, but what he would tend to do is just kind of just keep adding layers and layers and layers and making it really dirty looking. And it was almost like by the end, it was just like, well, that's, that was like his intention it was just like, well, we're just going to do like this really dirty grunge look. Right. But really it was because it was actually a lot harder to make a simple graphic than it was to make a grungy, dirty look. Right. You know, you know? Yeah. No, that's true. It, you know, it's like when you clog a toilet with too much toilet paper, you know, you can only <laughs> shove so much in there before it just gets dirty and complicated. Right, <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, and I think the same thing applies with music. Sure. Next segment is with Matt Moldover. He's become a good friend over the years, and he's been on the podcast a few times. So this is a segment from episode nine with Matt Moldover. When I, uh, I mean, for me, it was like a nice, you know, kind of expensive controller at the time. But, you know, the first thing I really opened up was, uh, actually, no, no, the first thing I opened up was a M Audio Oxygen 8. It was like one of the first cheap two octave MIDI controllers. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can buy this stuff. People will give you this stuff for free because it's so old now. Um, sure. Or you could buy it used or, you know, that's part of why I made the gaming controller course uh, for Ask Audio is because, like, one of the things about those controllers is they're just like, they're made by the millions, you know. You can get a Wiimote for yeah. like ten bucks or something, and that's got motion exactly. sensors and buttons. And so, yeah, I just say like get something cheap and just take the whole thing apart. And if nothing else, like you'll just get a sense for like, oh, like I'm not gonna break it just by like taking the screws out and like, oh, look, this is like this is just a little piece of plastic, like a, the simplest thing there is in any controller. And you know, when you right. realize it's just two pieces of metal making contact and you know, usually something on, on top of it to make it a little easier to interact with with your hands. And suddenly, I don't know, there's just, in my mind, there were all these things that clicked of like, oh, I could make that different or better, or, you know, right. whatever. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. That's cool, man. I, I even love that uh, your EP called Four Track, you actually uh, designed it into a circuitry board, which I think is really cool. Like, um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? I, I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah. So I, uh, for my first, uh, full length album release, I just want to do some crazy artwork. Uh, cause I love, you know, like LP covers, this big 12 inch, you know, piece of visual artwork. And I love, you know, I just, I don't know. I love artwork of all kinds. And, um, yeah. And I'm building instruments. So I was like, Hey, maybe I could build an instrument into the actual like album artwork, like the physical thing. So I made CDs and I built this, um, circuit board mounted um instrument called a light theremin um with my friend jojo and he taught me how to like lay out circuit boards and um and deal with uh schematics and um yeah and so the first album was like a light theremin inside of a cd case and the new album four track uh it looks like a cassette just because i wanted to make it look kind of like a musical artifact <laughs> yeah but it's actually awesome. a usb drive and then it's also got the circuitry for um like a processor i call a voice crusher so it's got a microphone too um but you can plug anything into it and crush it it just like destroys it and turns it into like noisy 8-bit um pitch shifted madness 
That's yeah, that's that's really cool, man. That's that's crazy. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that from any artist that that like far surpasses like handing out CDs or like here's a sticker. Yeah, I, I would I would just like to encourage people to to chase those crazy ideas, you know, like because I don't know, it takes loads of work. It's always more work than you think it'll be, but uh, I just see a lot of value in like you know, coming up with crazy stuff and executing it. To me, that's like, you know, that's what art and creativity is about. And, and yeah, uh, for me, it's been a great way to kind of find a unique voice and, you know, get attention for some crazy art and music that might not otherwise get that attention. A lyricist for the Grateful Dead died last week. His name is John Barlow. And uh, in his obituary, his, uh, his mom used to tell him, uh, anyone who's bored isn't paying close enough attention. Because, uh, yeah, I remember when I was like, bored as a kid and then, Somehow when I got into music and, you know, got really serious about a creative endeavor, you know, that all just disappeared. It was like, yeah, yeah how can you be bored when you could just, you know, make stuff? <laughs> hey, so this next episode is episode 12 with Christian Thomas, a friend of mine, and he is a playback engineer specializing in helping major artists set up their tours um, from studio to the stage. So this is episode 12 with Christian Thomas. Check it out. Part of my job is to collect a, ser a bunch of what they call stems, which are individual parts from an audio recording. And those yeah. stems can sometimes be uh, eight, eight wave files. Sometimes they can be in, in like Backstreet Boys fashion. It would be like 80 wave files. When you do that, Ableton Live is a unique piece of software by comparison to all the other DAWs because it is not processor intensive. Instead, it's very memory intensive, and that's because it's designed to play back things very quickly. And memory in the RAM inside of the computer is the fastest way it can access that memory. And yeah. so it really loads up on trying to, you know, it really behooves you to try to get 8 gigs or 16 gigs of memory memor uh, minimum inside of that computer because that's where it's going to load up all these files so it can play them back very quickly. Uh, yeah. That being said, it doesn't make sense to have the files that you're loading in there be of higher quality than is going to be perceivable by the audience. I always make sure, first and foremost, that the files I'm loading in are not ridiculously high, 96K, you know, right, 132-bit. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's, right. it's ridiculous because either it's going to eventually be subbed down to something like 44116, but the PA is not going to play. You're not, you're not going to be hear, hear that quality. Of as sad as it sounds, up until really this year, I've been operating almost every one of these projects at 44116. I've started to bite the bullet now as, as SSD drives become less expensive um, and, and switch a lot of these upscaled to 4824. Uh, but that's, okay. that's a huge optimization point right there. Sure. Absolutely. Is there any other little tips with that that you would help to optimize somebody's computer so it doesn't bug out or cry in the middle of a performance? And this kind of goes without saying, but it, it needs to be said, is no matter what, always make sure you are planning to run from an external audio interface. And I say yeah. that because I've gone out on the road and seen major productions that I didn't have a hand in where these guys are running it out of a two mix out of the MacBook Pro audio output port. Just running it aux out, really, That's like it. the headphone jack. That's crazy. Yeah. I've met a few people that have done that, and I've never personally done that. I mean, I understand the simplicity of not having to carry around like a big eight-channel interface with you or whatever. But well, you have I, a, I, there's a huge there's a huge amount of pluses to it, and 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 and, and this goes not just for people who are using the software. It goes for people who are using it in a DJ environment too. Um, yeah. As soon as you 
as soon as you introduce an external interface, you remove all things. Not only do you get other features, but it also dramatically removes latency. And most importantly, it removes the, um, any additional interference that come from things like somebody putting their cell phone too close to your computer. That's such an important thing that is oftentimes overlooked just because you can put a MacBook in your, in your backpack and travel around the world. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't take a little half space rack unit with, you know, like a, like a little Motu ultralight or something like that that doesn't take up that much space, but man, does right. it help. Man, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, are there any other like MIDI controllers that are out of the box for Ableton that you recommend to people to use for live performance? Yes. Uh, the caveat being that there are some, if there are Ableton specific controllers, if they're Ableton Live specific controllers, chances are they have a huge amount of features on them. And as a mm-hmm. result, they probably have more than what you need. The last yeah. thing that somebody who's performing on stage is, is, is to sit there and say, oh, wait a minute, which one does this button do? So yeah. the reality is only, you know, don't, don't get the thing with the most blinking lights and buttons because realistically, you're the only person looking at it. So get the one That's that has good. the exact amount of features you need, the amount of rotary encoders and those kinds of things. Right. In most yeah. cases, something like, a, something like a, one of the Roland MPD products is probably your better bet. This next episode is episode 13 with Mikas Angulov. He talks about how artists are really coming up remixing music these days. He runs the website WeMakeDanceMusic.com where you can download remixes or stems from fully produced Ableton projects and more. So here's episode 13. I took a track and I remixed it in two hours. It was a completely different track. It was new, new, <laughs> completely, because I was like, oh, this is good. But yeah, no, I feel like changing this. I feel like changing that. And it was more trancy, ended up being more like progressive, electro-y. So there's really a huge potential. And let's be honest, like yeah, house music has been created from people sampling vinyl, hip-hop vinyl, and soul vinyl. So this is the root of what we are doing that's always been, and I think this is the new generation where you have a complete package that you're like, you can go on with it. You know, you have a project, you can remix it 50 times. That's not a problem. You're going to make 50 different versions of tracks and go on yeah. and go on. So, and yeah, no, absolutely. And I love what you just said because I went to uh, a music festival called Electric Forest in Michigan last weekend. Uh, which I'm still recovering from. It was an amazing time, but I was absolutely blown away with how many people are actually remixing other people's songs and playing them live. So, I mean, it was just like, it was crazy. Like I felt like a lot of the artists on the main stages were spending 60% of the time spinning songs that weren't theirs, that they just chopped up and ended up turning into their own which is really cool. And so we kind of live in that world today. It seems like that's how a lot of artists are getting noticed today is by taking other people's songs, remixing them and then posting them on SoundCloud or whatever. And it seems like there's a lot of people who are getting noticed by labels or by um, other followers and fans who fell in love with the song that they heard was remixed and maybe they like it even better the second time around. Yeah, the, the mashup and the remix scene is, is bigger than the original scene itself. You know, people, they go... They want to to remix a major laser or Stevie Aoki or something like that. Or they want to because they get inspired from that sound. You know that sound resonates with them. They're like, "Wow, I want to do something with that." So they put their input in it and they create something new. And then maybe eventually Stevie Aoki might end up listening and hearing the track or something, and they might get picked up. You know, because this is this is actually the case of a lot of people. They get picked up because they rework some track and they're like, "Wow, this guy is good, man. Let's see what else you got." DJs, of course, want original content, you know? If you want to set yourself apart as a DJ, you have to have original stuff that 
only you play because everybody can go on Beatport and buy tracks. You know, it's just a yeah. matter of a couple dollars and the top 100 is played by a lot of people. But then do you have your own edits. Do you have your own inspiration. Do you, you know, so I think another thing to do with the projects we have is like, you can take a track, you can mash it up, you can, you can do anything. And there's quite a few projects that are inspired by popular trans track and then, or future based track. And then you input what do you feel like into it and then play it? You know, this is, this is, so what I think will, will make people stand out is to have really fresh stuff. They can play on their podcast, fresh edits or ID that nobody knows about, you know, that they made. Next episode is episode 14 with my friend Gardner Beeson. He talks about a lot of things. He also did a one year challenge where he made a song every day. Check it out. This is episode 14. So a lot of mistakes that my students make is, is they'll, they'll immediately start to invest in some sort of a controller setup or some sort of a, um, you know, setup that involves expensive audio interfaces, et cetera, et cetera. My advice would be just no, just start hammering out songs in the piano roll using the default plugins and, and effects and stuff and whatever your uh, DAW of choice is. Of course, I guess we could talk about Ableton, right? So sure. just, um, yeah. yeah, I would be like, listen, just get live suite or, or you know, live standard and start writing a track in using the instruments and learning how synthesis works because you've got everything you need in the software to actually learn all the basics and even some way more advanced, like, um, you know, production techniques because of all the great utilities that are built into the system. Don't, don't invest, don't invest in plugins, just save your cash, make sure it's something you actually want to do and see whether or not you're capable of writing a good track. It's like, so when I was a kid, I lived in Charleston, South Carolina, which is close to the ocean. It's on the ocean. And so sailing was a thing. Uh, and it wasn't like, you know, not like, you know, Northeast where it's like a frat boy kind of thing. It, like down here, it was like, it was a fun thing. Like everybody had a sunfish if you were going to the beach, which is a really small sailboat. Um, That's and, cool. That sounds warm yeah. and fun. It is. It is. And and it's not, it's, it's not an expensive thing either. But if you want to be a sailor, like you want to sail a big boat, you have to learn how to sail a sunfish or, or, a, or a dagger or something like, like some sort of a really small sailboat because it's a hundred times more difficult to sail a small sailboat than it is to sail a bigger one. But the, the right. concept is all the same. So it's kind of a, it's kind of this proof of concept. So that's why I tell my students, like you need to start and have a proof of concept in the software using the defaults before you can justify investing in this as a career, right? Because yeah, right. the price tag just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I've seen so many producers, um, you know, try to get into it invest in all this heavy equipment and then they're like three months later selling it all and they're at yep. a loss. and yep. it's like you could save yourself all that worry and, and and hardship just by seeing whether or not you're actually capable of writing music effectively yeah you know? a lot of the ableton students i teach at the studio and online everybody's like well what plugin should i get for delay and it's like you realize ableton already has like 600 delay effects you can use you know and it's like understanding your doll i feel like makes you more creative because it's no longer you just rely on like the sexiest presets from every plugin that you purchase and then you're super broke and you still don't know how to make music. And Facebook loves to show us relevant content. And so you get like, hey, if you buy this plugin, you're going to make music just like the greatest producer of your life. And and you need this plugin and you need this plugin. And then to take that a level further, I'd say, and you know, 
when you're about ready to invest in gear and look at DIY solutions. I do a lot of videos on my channel about DIY solutions to expensive problems. You know, it's it's yeah, it's uh, it just goes from there. Look at used gear. Like I said, there's tons of people that get into this and then figure out they don't want to do it or that they can't make money, so they sell it. So go on Reverb.com, go on eBay, save save your cash, figure out if it's something you want to do or not. We have the most expensive hobby, but it's worth it, right? It's really, you can just write it off as therapy. <laughs> video, video gear, man. Audio gear has nothing on video gear. For every dollar you could spend on an expensive piece of audio gear, it costs $5 for that same piece of gear in the video. Probably. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So hopefully you got into Bitcoin like 10 years ago and now you can afford it. <laughs> and you can afford it, maybe. Last but not least, this is episode 15 with my buddy Ben Spilker. And he shares some good insights about producing for newbies. And yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed these little tidbits of episodes. Here's episode 15. So many times I've been worked up in the past, whether working by myself or in the studio with other people. And I'm just like, it has to be perfect. And it's just like, no, have fun, come up with something and, and ideas will spark out of the playfulness and creativity of just like screwing around and finding happy accidents because there's billions and billions of happy accidents inside of Ableton. Like what I've found is really the, the attitude you got to go across Ableton is, is what does this button do? You know, you just got to go yeah. have fun and, and try to just figure it out. Just experiment. You'll come up with some really interesting, happy accidents if, if you experiment. Right. All of my favorite songs that I produced and favorite songs that my like fans and followers have liked were songs that I didn't overthink it. I just kind of did it. You know, it just kind of happened. Yo, hope you guys have enjoyed this recap from the first 15 episodes of the podcast. Stay tuned for part two in the series where I'm going to highlight a lot more conversations I've had over the last two years doing the podcast. Also, if you haven't purchased Ableton Live 11, the latest standard or suite version, I would be glad to hook you up with a massive discount. Go to liveproducersonline.com slash buy Ableton. Happy to hook you up there. One of the best things to happen to my music career and producing and getting better as an artist is having a good mentor. I think it's super important. If you would like to get help with your projects and if you want a custom learning experience and just a mentor to help you, I would be interested in helping you. You can apply by going to liveproducersonline.com masterclass. Check that out. Also happy to have you on the newsletter if you want to get the latest episodes before anybody else and if you also want to get free content and downloads to step up your ableton live skills go to liveproducersonline.com newsletter and if you want to join the membership you can check out more on that site so much love everybody stay tuned for next time bye bye